Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, the lack of affordable housing is not only a problem on the mainland. There is no national policy on island housing. Solutions by the four county councils involved vary widely, from none at all to minimal involvement. And why should we listen to what the tides are telling us? The tide really, if we listen to it, it's telling us basically to cop on and not to be harming the environment in the way that we are. And it's also a flashing light to remind us of our influence on the workings of the planet and the environment. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme, a reflective radio show about the sea. Coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yole on the East Cork coastline and bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland. Our offshore island communities are a very important part of the fabric of this nation, an island nation itself. Too often to me they seem to be out of sight and out of mind both metaphorically and realistically to the public at large and to the state apparatus. For example, islanders like those on the mainland need houses and if they can't get them, will they have to leave and go to the mainland if there are no housing provisions on the island? And is that preserving the culture and heritage of the offshore islands? Rhoda Twombly, Secretary of Kogali Lawna Heron, the Islands Federation, gives us some answers. Lack of affordable housing, and indeed any type of housing, brought 15,000 people out onto the streets of Dublin a couple of weeks ago. Housing is a serious challenge for the islands as well. Lack of housing is a roadblock to sustainability and growth. Just as on the mainland, where you have no affordable, suitable housing, you won't have the ability to attract or maintain population. Unlike the mainland, an islander cannot look to the next town over for a home. They must leave their island. A number of factors create housing shortages on islands. Islanders often face planning refusal as large areas of their island may be designated SAC. Sites do not often become available to buy, and it is felt that where possible, an islander intending to build a home for their family living permanently on the island should be given preference in the planning process. As is common on the mainland, especially in rural, holiday-driven villages, the few island properties that do come up for sale are often purchased by people who can afford a second home for a tidy sum. This pushes up property prices, putting them beyond the reach of the local bidder. Seasonality is another contributing factor. It is generally easy to rent a house through the off-season, but, and this is understandable, it is far more lucrative to short-term let during the summer, leaving the resident out in the cold, so to speak. There is no national policy on island housing. Solutions by the four county councils involved vary widely, from none at all to minimal involvement. People looking for council housing have been forced to move to the mainland by at least two of the counties. An islander cannot look to an alternative town if there is no council housing available nearby. Obviously, this has a hugely negative effect on any island struggling to keep island families home 
and attract emigres back. That is not to say that there are no programs in place to help the situation, but there can be a lack of will or funding to follow through. County Cork has bought and renovated one house on Bear Island, which is now rented to a local person. Monies granted for renovation have proven unrealistically low, but this amount is to be raised, so hopefully more houses can be updated in this way. It is felt the councils that have responsibility for islands should be given more national funding to allow them to properly maintain and improve island infrastructure in general. Government and county councils must look for new solutions or at least make existing programs work. They need to look at models such as the Community Land Trust operating in Scotland, England and mainland Europe with great success, as well as other housing trusts. There are answers out there and island communities, county councils and national government must avail of them. On to some good news. I'd like to wish the Bear Island Projects Group all the very best of luck in the finals of the National Lottery Good Causes Awards. They've won the regional section for heritage for their conservation plan and work on the Lone Heart Fort and are now through to the finals. The overall winner will be announced in November, so well done to all. Slán for now from the islands. Twombly reporting what's happening on the islands from Kogol Ilona Heron, the Islands Federation. And those islands, like the mainland, are washed by the tides, about which there's a lot to be known. At the opening of the programme, you'll have heard it being said that we should all cop on to what the tides are telling us. The speaker was scientist Magdaro Kuig, who works with the Marine Institute, talking about the way tides impact on our lives, even if we don't realise it. His views come from the series of three documentaries which he presented on TG4, filmed on four continents and in ten countries, from beaches to marshlands, swamps to mudflats, about the world's strongest and highest tides. He explained his views to Justin Marr. The tide coming and going in and out is ruled essentially by the sun, the moon and the earth and their alignment. As you know, we have the spring tides when the sun, the moon and the earth are in one line and when the sun, the moon and the earth are at 90 degree angle, it's a weaker tide, what we call the neap tides. And also the topography of the area where the tide is moving. There was a nice piece there on the first program of the series up in Mulrenny and Mayo. On one side you have Clue Bay where the tidal range is nearly about 5 metres and on the other side you have the upper reaches of Black Sod where the tidal range is only 3 metres and they're only a kilometre and a half apart. But it just goes to show it's the same sea, the same gravitational forces that are moving but the local topography will have an effect on the result. And you see from the huge tidal range, the biggest in the world in the Bay of Fundy, it's like 57 foot of a drop in the tide. And it's great with the camera work where you have the drone footage and the time-lapse photography and you see people walking on the shore. You can actually sense the scale by the way the local people are describing where they work with the tide and how do they work with what's local to them. You have shipping pilots, you have surfers, you have fishermen, people from very different walks of life who make their living through the sea and through the oceans. And it's fascinating to see how they themselves interpret the forces that are at play. It is, and also how those forces and the rhythm of those forces create the rhythm and the lifestyle of those people that work with it. Um, It was the same for me when I used to lobster fish with my uncle as a young lad. 
we would get up with the appropriate tide to go fishing because we were fishing from a curve where we didn't have a sounder or plotter, so we were using just pure nature and what we'd see under us to set our pots. So we would time it to be out setting our pots on the lowest tide so we would get a better view of the substrate of what was below us. Our plan was to set up our pots in the place where you'd have the greatest chance, obviously, of catching a lobster. So the tide ruled our timing of going to sea and coming home. It ruled when we got up, when we went to bed. And it's the same for these people all around the world. They live and work with the tide and harness it in, in different ways, whether it's food or energy or even leisure. One of the fascinating and stunning pieces of film in the series is the tidal bore in China, where 100,000 people will come and see this spring tide roaring across the water. Tell me a bit about the circumstances of how that tidal bore comes around. Well, the tidal bore in China is called the Silver Dragon, and maybe your listeners would be more aware of the one in the Severn, called the Severn Bore in Wales. But when the tide is coming in, because of the way it rushes up the river, it creates a wave on the rising tide going upriver. This one in China, because of the nature of the area, there's actually two bores that come together to create a huge one, which can be up to nine metres high. And on the biggest spring tide in the autumn, there's a festival there, the Festival of the Moon, they call it, where people get together to celebrate the Harvest Festival on the Moon, but also to witness this natural occurrence. And it's amazing to see all the people who go there. And obviously there's huge forces at play here as well, so much so that the Chinese authorities have to have many stewards to help keep people safe and keep them away from the riverbank from when the wave itself hits the protective wall upriver. And actually when the wave hits the wall as it's rushing up the river, that impact creates a secondary wave that goes back downriver again. The footage from that is quite spectacular. What effect has humanity had on the tide as a force itself, McDowell? That's an interesting aspect that comes through in the series. It's not put on your face, but you will see what the tide is telling us about our relationship with the Earth. When we hear talk about climate change, the first thing that people would mention is a rise in sea level. So you will see greater tides, tides going places they haven't gone before. It's a warning signal for us as humans. Another thing that's quite apparent, anytime you go for a walk by the shore, you'll see plenty of plastic that has come ashore. Now, it came in by the tide, but the tide didn't create the plastic. It was us humans that made that plastic. And we've been, as a human race, dumping plastic in the sea for the last 50, 80 years. It's becoming more of an issue. It doesn't go away because it takes so long for it to decompose. What makes it worse then, it breaks down to tiny, tiny little pieces into microplastics, which affect some of the small zooplankton in the sea and the way that they work. And may actually have a detrimental effect on climate change in itself in that it may be stopping those small animals from working as a natural CO2 sink in the deep waters by making them more buoyant than they naturally would be if there's plastic in their guts. From watching this series, when you see how interrelated we all are, how the tide moves around the world, how it connects us, what it carries us and what it tells us about our actions, especially in relation to the potential for climate change, the tide really, if we listen to it, it's telling us basically to cop harm and not to be harming the environment in the way that we are. And it's also a flashing light to remind us of our influence on the working for the planet and the environment. Mokdara Okuig talking to Justin Marr and his series Tida is available on the TG4 player that's www.tg4.ie and forward slash player. 
Now to that very important service, the lifeboats run by the RNLI and from their Irish headquarters, Neil Stevenson brings us the latest news from the lifeboat stations around the country. There are always comings and goings in the RNLI and the next big development will be on the June bank holiday weekend when Clarehead in County Loud gets its new Shannon-class lifeboat. In 1993, Clara Head's Watson lifeboat was replaced by the Mersey class, increasing potential speed from 8 to 16 knots. The arrival of the Shannon will increase this speed yet again to 25 knots. Training will continue over the next few weeks and the official naming ceremony will be held at the end of August. One of the Ornelli's youngest helms, 21-year-old Jonathan Connor from Kinsale, had his first call-out as helm of the Kinsale inshore lifeboat Miss Sally Ann Baggy 2, just one week after he took up the post, and it resulted in a swimmer being saved. Jonathan, a student at Cork Institute of Technology, is already an experienced sailor and a qualified commercial diver. He was in charge of the Kinsale Atlantic 85 lifeboat, accompanied by fellow volunteer Lenny Forey, who was also passed out as helm along with Jonathan. The rescued swimmer had been in the water for a considerable length of time when using his Ornali training and local knowledge, Jonathan quickly located him in under 15 minutes and brought him to safety. The rescued swimmer had been in the water for a considerable length of time when, using his RNLI training and local knowledge, Jonathan quickly located him in under 15 minutes and brought him to safety. Now, Lauren RNLI has a group of volunteers with a very strong family ethos and team approach to ensure everyone plays their part and helps to save lives in the Lauren area. The station has seven different families where sons and daughters have followed in their parents' footsteps and now volunteer at the station. Lauren Ornelai Coxon, Frank Healy, has volunteered there since the station was established 25 years ago and his son Jack joined the crew as soon as he reached the minimum age set by the Ornelai. And Alan Dorman is the lifeboat operations manager there and son Chris and daughter Pamela hold the roles of deputy second coxswain and helm respectively. Lockdurg Oranali held a special ceremony for their new inshore lifeboat, the Atlantic 85 B911 Jean Spire. The lifeboat had already been named, but this was a special rededication on home ground. The donor, Robert Spire, had been unable to travel to Ireland and a ceremony was held in Poole. However, Mr Spire really wanted to see the lifeboat on Loch Derg and meet the men and women that would be carrying out the call-outs on the inland sea, as the crew call it. The new B-class lifeboat was donated by Robert and his late wife Jean. The boat is named after her. The ceremony was held outside on the lawn of the Loch Derg Yacht Club in splendid sunshine and Paddy McLaughlin, RNLI Irish Council member and coxswain of Red Bay Lifeboat Station received the lifeboat into the care of the institution. Paddy said, There is no greater gift than we can receive, no act of generosity more appreciated by the volunteers than the bequest of a life-saving vessel. Loch Derg Lifeboat Operations Manager Liam Maloney accepted the lifeboat on behalf of the crew. And I'm going to end with news of an award which I had the honour of presenting to an extremely popular and well-known volunteer at Loch Derg Oranali, and that's Eleanor Hooker. This was the Oranali Excellence in Volunteering Award 
which is in recognition of her outstanding contribution. Eleanor was the volunteer lifeboat press officer at Loch Derg or in for 11 years, in which time she did an incredible job in raising the profile of the inland station. She's not going anywhere as she continues on as helm at the station. And if you're lucky, you may also hear her reading one of her published poems on national radio. Neil Stevenson reporting from RNLI headquarters in Ireland at Swords County, Dublin. And we may get to broadcast one of Eleanor Hooker's poems. Next, Justin Moore has a roundup of other maritime news from the Irish coastline and overseas. Famous buildings and landmarks across Ireland will go Atlantic blue over the weekend of the 7th to 10th of June to celebrate our connection to the Atlantic Ocean as part of World Oceans Day. The Global Day on Saturday the 8th of June connects people worldwide in celebrating the ocean, its importance in our lives and how each of us can protect it no matter where we live. In Ireland, more than 20 different landmarks are expected to participate in the day by lighting up their buildings, including the Bailey and Rogers Point lighthouses, the ports of Cork and Galway, Dublin, Shannon and Cork airports, and the National Maritime College of Ireland, the Marine Institute and the Marine and Renewable Energy Ireland Centre in Cork. It's the first year of the initiative and is being coordinated by the Atlantic Ocean Research Alliance Coordination and Support Action under Director Dr. Margaret Ray. I guess one of the things that with modern day life and transportation and everything, we actually forget that we're an island and we forget that there is an Atlantic Ocean there. It's really only the people who are actually on the coast directly or whose livelihoods are directly affected by the Atlantic Ocean that do realize that we have an Atlantic Ocean beside us. So uh, I guess one of the things that I wanted to do was to highlight our Atlantic Ocean and how much we don't know about the Atlantic Ocean, how much we need to further explore in order to be able to accurately predict and protect our Atlantic Ocean and ourselves. So I started to think about a very highly visible way to do that. And the one that struck me was uh, St. Patrick's Day and lighting up in green to celebrate the Irish. And I thought, well, we're the green in the blue, a green dot literally in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And I thought, oh, I wonder if we could light up in blue. And so I've been contacting various different organizations, asking them if they would come on board and light up in blue to celebrate our Atlantic Ocean. Businesses, shops, schools and homes across the country will also go Atlantic Blue on the day. You can go Atlantic Blue yourself by decorating your business, home or school with an Atlantic Blue colour, dress in Atlantic Blue clothing or paint your face dark blue or organise your own Atlantic Blue themed event. You can also take a photo or video and tag them with Go Atlantic Blue or World Oceans Day on social media to highlight what the Atlantic Ocean means to you. Scientists believe that global sea levels could rise far more than predicted due to accelerating melting in Greenland and Antarctica. The long-held view has been that the world's seas would rise by a maximum of just under a metre by 2100. This new study, based on expert opinions, projects that the real level may be around double that figure. This could lead to the displacement of hundreds of millions of people, the authors say. An American explorer has found plastic waste on the seafloor while breaking the record for the deepest ever dive. Victor Vescovo descended nearly 11 kilometers to the deepest place in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean's Mariana Trench. 
He spent four hours exploring the bottom of the trench in his submersible, built to withstand the immense pressure of the deep. He found sea creatures, but also found a plastic bag and sweet wrappers. It's the third time humans have reached the ocean's extreme depths. Finally, an Irish-bred white-tailed sea eagle has become the first of its species to reach England. Named Angus, he was fledged last year in Connemara, County Galway. After a trip around the southeast and east coast of Ireland, Angus headed north to Mallon Head in Donegal. On May 1st, he went east to reach the North Antrim coast before making the shortest crossing of 21 kilometres to the Mull of Kintyre. He headed northeast on the 5th of May, crossing over the Isle of Arran before roosting near Gilson, southeast of Edinburgh. Since the program to restore white-tailed eagles here began in 2007, around 100 birds have been released in Killarney National Park. Many of the birds are satellite-tracked, and there are now at least 10 pairs in the wild in Ireland, including Glen Gareth. Justin Marr reporting and World Oceans Day. Gold Atlantic Blue will be followed by SeaFest and the Ocean Wealth Summit in Cork and a week-long Cork Harbour Maritime Festival. So a lot happening there in early June. Now to the angling world on the rivers, lakes and estuaries of Ireland. And news about a survey of bluefin tuna, a very interesting species. Hello to all the anglers listening in. Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries Ireland here again to give a quick roundup of the news from the world of fishing. Bluefin tuna are the largest tuna species in the world. These colossal fish can weigh over 600 kilograms, measure over 3 metres and live for more than 30 years. What's even more incredible is that they swim in Irish waters. Every year they migrate past the Irish coastline during their journey from the Mediterranean and Central Atlantic. Previously, under ICAT rules, that's the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, anglers in Ireland were not allowed to fish for these tuna, even on a catch-and-release basis. But that's all about to change. Last year, Ireland secured an agreement with ICAT that allows limited target of Atlantic bluefin tuna by recreational anglers for the collection of scientific data. This is a really exciting opportunity for charter skippers and sea anglers to contribute to data collection and to support important research while experiencing some of the most exciting and coveted fishing in the world. Tuna Chart is a pilot bluefin tuna data collection programme that will see 15 specially authorised angling vessels catch, tag and release Atlantic bluefin tuna for data collection purposes off the Irish coast. Tuna Chart's findings will increase our knowledge of the behaviour and abundance of bluefin tuna in the waters off the Irish coast. The new programme, which is being developed by Inland Fisheries Ireland and the Marine Institute in partnership with the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority, the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and the Department for the Communications, Climate Action and Environment will operate on a pilot basis in 2019. It has to be stressed that this will be a strictly controlled fishery operating on a pilot basis. The conservation status of bluefin tuna is endangered and their populations are declining. Both the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority and Inland Fisheries Ireland will be undertaking inspections and patrols around the coast this year. Any unauthorised skippers found targeting bluefin tuna will be prosecuted. Interested charter boat skippers who wish to apply for an authorisation should visit fisheriesireland.ie forward slash bluefin to download an information guide and to submit an application. Anglers who want to have a go at catching one of these giants of the sea 
and increase our knowledge of this incredible species can do so by booking places on authorised charter fishing boats. A list of these charter boats will be available later in the summer when the boats for the programme have been chosen. We will, of course, make that list available online and elsewhere as soon as it is available. In other angling news, salmon anglers are seeing more fish in the rivers, but low water and bright sunshine has not always made catching them easy. Bigger rivers are doing a bit better, and the moya is getting catches over 100 fish a week. The mayfly is up in all the lakes now. Sheelan is not seeing the unbelievable clouds of fly that anglers witnessed last year, but trout between 3 and 5 pounds are being caught on the milder evenings. The western lakes are seeing good hatches too, but there's also good fishing to buzzers and more on that side of the country. Coarse fishing has also been very good lately in spite of the bright sunshine. Tench fishing has picked up in Longford area and some cracking bream fishing has also been enjoyed. Competition anglers weighed in good bags from several venues including Loch Urn, where Fermanagh Classic Fishing Festival was fished recently. James O'Doherty from Enniskillen was the winner there with an impressive total which was just a few grams short of 72 kilos. Well done, James. I'll return to sea angling to finish. Those bluefins are the world's biggest tuna, but we also have one of the world's biggest sharks in Irish waters. The monstrous six-skilled shark can reach eight metres and weigh as much as 590 kilos. And they are caught every year off the Clare coast by some very lucky anglers fishing with Luke Aston on the Clare de Groon. They've already had two this season. That's some going. Well, that's all from me this week. Safe fishing for all, and don't forget, CPR saves fish. Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland, ending this edition of the Maritime Programme This Island Nation on community radio stations around Ireland and produced at CRY 104FM Yole on the East Cork coastline with technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio in Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM, Clare on Radio Cork of Boschkeen, Kilkenny on Kilkenny City Community Radio, Limerick on West Limerick 102 FM and on Cork City Community Radio. With podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the marinetimes.ie. And there's a special edition for visually impaired listeners in association with the National Council for the Blind. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. And you can contact the programme on email to thisislandnation at gmail.com or by phone or text to 0872 555 197. That's email, thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555 197. And there's a weekly blog on Facebook. Until our next programme from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing.